If you are interested in trying to improve the outcomes for youth who age out of foster care, then this podcast is for you. Hi, I'm Lynn Tanini, founder of Aging Out Institute, an organization dedicated to sharing resources and strategies that help youth who have to age out of the system be able to transition to independence successfully. Now grab something to take notes and get ready for some great information. Hello and welcome to Aging Out Institute's seventh podcast in our series, Preparing Foster Youth for Adulting. Our guest today is Madeline Reedy. Madeline is a senior director for an organization called City Square. Specifically, she heads up their TRAC program, which stands for Transition Resource Action Center. They're based in Dallas, Texas, and today we're going to learn about their program. Welcome, Madeline. So happy to have you here with us for today's podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. I'm so glad to be here. Oh, well, we're happy to have you. I am very interested in learning about your program, City Square, and the track program that you run. To get things started, how about if you share a little bit about yourself and how is it that you're connected with the foster care system? I've been working at City Square for almost 15 years in the track program, and so I got connected maybe back in the year 2000, working in an advocate program for juvenile delinquents, and then that segued into working for a nonprofit and teaching life skills classes to youth aging out of foster care. And when I went back to school and worked on a degree in nonprofit management, that was when City Square's track program first got its government contracts. And so I came on board to help them kind of oversee that. And so it's all gone from there. Wow. And so there's a degree. What, what was the degree that you got in nonprofit management? Was that a bachelor's or a master's? Yeah, I have a master's degree in urban affairs with an emphasis in nonprofit management. So kind of a study of the city and its problems and how nonprofits step in to help. Is that a common degree? If other people were interested in looking into that, is that something that they could find at most universities? Do you know? Usually people go into urban planning or city planning, something like that. And so it, it's, it was kind of unique when I was looking into it, I was really interested in working for a nonprofit and not necessarily for a government entity. And so the University of Texas at Arlington had the program underway and I was able to get in there. Wow, that's really interesting. So what is it that City Square does and in particular track? Maybe we could help us understand City Square first and then what it is that you do with track. Sure. So City Square is a um, large nonprofit in Dallas that exists to fight the causes and effects of poverty through service, advocacy, and friendship. And so we say that we don't have clients, but we help our neighbors out. And so the track program is a large program underneath that that's kind of a microcosm of all of that City Square does. And so TRAC stands for the Transition Resource Action Center, and it was birthed out of a community collaborative of about 25 different agencies in the year 2000 saying, you know, we can do better for kids connected with the court system. And so in 2003, TRAC opened its doors under the City Square umbrella, and we have built programming to meet the needs of young people to help them become self-sufficient. So our mission is to help 14 to 24 year old young adults in substitute care find their way towards independent living, kind of in that same realm of service advocacy and friendship. Okay, and these 25 agencies, I'm trying to picture 
how that happened. Are they still involved in some partnership type of arrangement? Our founder was Evie K. Washburn, and so she organized a group called Target Kids in Court. And so it was just a conglomeration of entities that were connected with the court system. So the main people that kind of helped spur track into existence were, of course, Child Protective Services here in Texas, the CASA agencies around here, different child placing agencies, different nonprofits that kind of connected to them. And so City Square was at the table then under a different name, Central Dallas Ministries, but that's how they kind of came on board as our fiscal agent. Different foundations were involved. And so it really was everybody that kind of helps kids in court systems coming together and saying, what's the best practice across the the nation? And at that time, there were very few independent living centers or transition centers. And so the Annie E. Casey Foundation was really instrumental in getting a lot of those kicked off. And so we kind of modeled ourselves on some of those programs throughout the nation. And there was already a couple in Texas, but we were maybe the third that came on board. Mm-hmm. Okay. And what geographical um, area do you serve there? So we serve all of North Texas. So here in Texas, it's the Department of Family and Protective Services, Region 3. So it's 19 counties in North Texas. So we go up to kind of the Oklahoma border, Sherman, and then we go down south to a town called Stephenville that's small, and then we go out east and west. And so the main urban hubs that people would know would be Dallas, Tarrant County, Fort Worth, and Denton County, which is Denton, Texas. And so they're all involved in our kind of service area. Okay. And how many youth do you serve, let's say, in a year's time? Yeah. So last year in 2019, we served, I believe the exact number is 1,025 young people through our various services. Okay. And your various services being TRACS services? Yeah. So track kind of how we built our services is everything starts with providing life skills training to young people that are still in foster care. So between the ages of 14 and 18, we provide the Casey life skills assessment. And then we kind of go over that with the foster parents and CPS caseworker on things that they could do in the home to help the kid learn um, some independent living skills before they age out. And then we teach a 36-hour curriculum on preparation for adult living to young people throughout the Metroplex. And then from there, once a young person turns 16, um, we have a very um, robust workforce program that helps get a kid, a young person job ready, and then helps them land that job and then helps them keep that job. And then um, at 17 and a half here in Texas, young adults are eligible for aftercare case management, which is intensive case management services. And so that's the majority of what we do is help 17 and a half to 21 year olds with that initial transition out of the foster care system. And then what we found is a number of our young people are homeless. And so we have a pretty robust housing program that includes temporary rental assistance, rapid rehousing programs, transitional living programs, and permanent supportive housing programs for young people who are um, experiencing homelessness in our community. Okay. And and that's all you do, right? <laughs> that's most of what we do. We do also have these transition centers. So they operate like a drop-in center. So I have one in Dallas and one in Fort Worth that are specific to foster youth. And then last summer, we opened one in conjunction with the local ISD and um, emergency shelter partner to provide a drop-in center 
especially for youth experiencing homelessness. So 50% of the young people that we've served since last summer are youth in foster care. And then the other 50% are just young people who are experiencing homelessness in the community who weren't connected to the system. Okay. Well, that is a lot. It really is a broad program that does a lot of different things to help the young people. It sounds like you help them with um, employment, housing in some cases. I'm assuming you support them in getting educational achievements. Yes, um, that's part of what we consider part of our workforce program. So if being in school is moving them towards a living wage job, then we support them through our workforce advocacy. Mm -hmm. Okay. I'm trying to picture what this looks like. You probably have a lot of of staff, but what does that makeup um, look like? Do you have volunteers as well? Is it a large staff, small staff? How does how does that look? It definitely takes a village, doesn't it? Um, I haven't looked at the exact numbers, but I always say that there are about 70 adults um, kind of supporting this program. And so probably 30, 35 are full-time employees. And then we have about seven or eight AmeriCorps members that serve with us. So City Square runs one of the largest AmeriCorps programs in North Texas. And so we're lucky to have um, the ability to have members serve in our programs. And then I have anywhere from six to eight pro Renata staff who work as needed teaching those life skills classes. And then we also have volunteers and interns from local universities who serve with us. So yeah, so we have some LPC interns who help run support groups and do counseling. We have social work interns who help be case aides and learn kind of what it's like to be a case manager. And then we also have volunteers. We have a pretty fun program called Yes Volunteers. And so those are our youth employment services volunteers. And so they'll help if a young person needs somebody to sit with them and look for jobs online or those horrible online assessments that so many companies have now that are so difficult, even for me, that they're really hard for our young people to kind of figure out how do I answer this question without someone helping them? And so we have, we have some volunteers that do that. And then we also have volunteers who maybe sponsor a meal on Fridays. And so they'll come in and bring food for our young people and serve them. And so, yes, yeah, so we have some uh, conglomeration of things that we need to kind of help make sure that our young people have the support that they need. Yeah, definitely. You need that many people to, to support such a large program. Now, you mentioned AmeriCorps, and, and a lot of listeners may know what that is, but for those who don't, could you explain what AmeriCorps is and what they do? Sure. So I'll probably get in a little bit of trouble because I'm not, <laughs> not an expert in AmeriCorps, but the way that I see it is it's kind of like the Peace Corps, but on the, the home front. And so these are people that want to serve in their community, and so... They're increasing their skills by partnering with an agency that's helping. And so here in North Texas, City Square's program is all about food insecurity. So because so many of our young people um, lack access to food, whether it's a grocery desert or just not having the income to buy food or not understanding how to apply for SNAPs, that sort of thing. So that's, that's kind of what our AmeriCorps members help with is making sure that our young people are connected to the services that they need to make sure that they're food secure. 
it's really a great program. And then at the end of it, so throughout it, they get a, a, a living stipend while they're serving. And then at the end, they get an education award that they can use towards any educational attainment that can be applied. And so it's kind of great. So we have all kinds of AmeriCorps members of all ages. And it's great for City Square because a lot of the time our AmeriCorps members end up being so fabulous that we want to hire them in one of our other jobs if we can. So it's great for them and for us. And they can serve up to four terms. And so that's almost a little over a year. And so you can have the same person for a pretty long time. Oh, that's great. That's fantastic to have that partnership. Mm-hmm. It really is a huge win. And how do you find the youth for your program? And you have a very broad age range, 14 to 24. So I imagine it may be different ways. I can't imagine that you're starting with 14-year-olds and they work all the way through the program to 24, that people are coming in, these young people are coming in at different ages. So how is it that you're finding them? Are you partnered with agencies that are referring the young people? Yes. So TRAC has two contracts with Child Protective Services for life skills training and aftercare case management. And so that is a funnel for us. So Child Protective Services refers youth directly to us for services a lot of the time. And then we also, because of how we started and just our footprint, we've been around for over 15 years since we opened in 2003. Many, many um, child placing agencies and CASAs and just people connected with the foster care system know about TRAC and they will recommend that young people work with us. But what's most amazing to me is the number of youth to youth referrals that we get. So we, we often do what we call backwards referrals. And so young people will call us directly and ask us if they can start working with us. And so if we need to go towards CPS and get approval for that and to get them enrolled in life skills training or case management, we could do that. But that is a large chunk of how we get young people is actually they call us directly themselves. Hmm. Okay. And it sounds like you probably have a variety of funding sources. Are you able to share maybe high level, the different types of funding that keeps you going? Sure. Track is probably 80% funded by government sources. And so most of our housing programs are through the local continuum of care through housing and urban development or HUD funds. We have those two contracts with Child Protective Services that I mentioned, and we have two contracts with the Texas Workforce Commission to support our workforce advocacy. And then we have a number of private foundations and individuals that support our work. So that's also great. So because we're in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex, it's a pretty awesome area of philanthropy and groups that are really engaged in supporting the members in their community that need it. And so we have a number of different private partnerships that really step in and help. Yeah, that's fantastic. Now, do you accept donations? And if so, what would be the best way for people to um, get in touch with you about donating? Yeah, so we do accept donations. If they go to the City Square website under donate, you can donate online if you're wanting to give monetarily. If you're wanting to volunteer your time, you can also go to the City Square website and go to the volunteer tab and that will walk you through that process. 
internally at track i have a community engagement manager and so once you get involved that way on our website then you'll be funneled over to will who can connect with you and help you if it's someone that wants to give in-kind donations they can just email track at citysquare.org and then we can set them up that way and so also on our website there's a section on foster youth and track and so you can go to to that page and just see we have a couple of i think it's like a secured fund that was developed by members of the community so the director before me he he suddenly passed away after a battle with colon cancer and so in his honor his family created a legacy the jerry sullivan memorial fund and so that is something that um, members of the community can give towards that goes towards the unmet needs that government funds don't necessarily cover so for instance if i have a homeless young mother who has a baby i can't necessarily buy um, the social security card um, for that young baby with any of the funding that I have for that young mom. And so that fund allows me to get IDs for those babies so that they can legally be on the lease and get that family out of homelessness. Mm. All right. Well, thank you. So maybe uh, some of our listeners will be interested in getting in touch with uh, the track program and, and donate in some form or fashion or volunteer. That would be fantastic. Yeah, it would be awesome. So my next question is regarding the housing program. So you work with a lot of different youth in a, in a large area, and you said you do have a single housing program. How many youth do you work with in that housing program that are living in some sort of residential um, housing? And is that your housing that you own, or do you work with, say, landlords in the local area? So we have some funds to help with temporary rental assistance, and so that helps us help young people throughout the, the the region three area that we serve. And so we're able to pay deposits or a couple months rent or a utility payment to help a young person out. But the majority of our housing is actually in Dallas County. And so um, in Dallas County, we have about 50 units of housing. 50 beds. And so that is through our transitional housing, rapid rehousing, and permanent supportive housing. And so in our transitional housing, young people share an apartment and get some pretty intensive services while we're kind of teaching them life skills. In rapid rehousing, that's a step-down method. And so the young person is on their own lease. And so over the course of a year, we'll step-down assistance um, rental assistance. And so maybe for the first six months, we'll pay the full rent while they're getting a job, getting back on their feet, saving up some money. And then the next three months, maybe we'll pay 50%. And then the next three months, we'll pay maybe 25%. So at the end of that year, they're fully taking over that lease and paying their rent. And then in our permanent supportive housing program, that is for young adults that have a disability that precludes them from working. And so those young people are on their own lease and then we help them with their rent and so we'll help them hopefully get a job if they can and then they'll pay a portion towards their rent every month or if they can't get a job maybe they can get on social security and so we'll help them with that process and if they have no income then we'll pay their full rent as long as they need it and as long as they need that program and what's been great about that is so a number of our young people have um even been in that program and then have been able to become self-sufficient and taken over their lease too. So that's pretty awesome. And then what we started maybe a year, year and a half ago was a housing program in Tarrant County. 
So I don't know if across the nation there are other places like this that we have in our Metroplex. But if you're from Dallas, you want to stay in Dallas. And if you're from Fort Worth, you want to stay in Fort Worth. And so you don't necessarily cross that geographical divide. And so we had a number of young people who were experiencing homelessness in Tarrant County that didn't want to move to Dallas County. And so we were able to get some funding um, to start a housing program in Tarrant County. And so it started with just eight beds. And then this year we have expanded by another 10 beds. So that's 18 beds in Tarrant County, which we're pretty excited about. Yeah, that's fantastic. And in any of these residential situations, do you have like a house manager, um, somebody who's living there to support the young people? You know, that's interesting. Our transitional living program has changed over the years. So we started as a more traditional model, like you're talking about, which had a live-in, what we called a resident advisor. And then the young people would move from living with the resident advisor to a unit on the property where the resident advisor was still on hand for assistance, and then they would move off property for the phase three. And what we found was that the majority of our young people really weren't succeeding in that model. We had very few who made it all the way through phase three, and they weren't very happy. And so I can tell you that for a year and a half, I was that resident advisor. I had that job for City Square for a while. And so we really morph the program to be as housing first as possible. So, you know, housing first is a term that says above all else, you're going to prioritize housing and then you're going to work on everything else. You're not going to kind of set any standard on what housing means. And so that's hard to do with the transitional living program where people share housing because you really have to worry about safety and make sure that you are bringing in the right people but we've modeled our program to be as housing first as possible. So we do not have at this time, anybody that lives on the property. We have what we call a coach. So in all of our case management, we use a a life coaching philosophy where we're really concerned with where you wanna be in five years and how can we coach you down that path and how can we empower you to kind of take over your life. And so we have a coach that does intensive case management and pops in on the property, but our young people live kind of like they would if they had a room and we're living in an apartment while they were going to college. So we're, we're kind of checking in on them and doing goal setting and having house meetings and, you know, random pop-in inspections to make sure everything's going okay. We do a lot of roommate mediation, but no, we don't have anybody that lives there anymore. And the truth is we've seen more success with this model than we did before. And I think it has to do with the fact that our housing program tends to take the most difficult to serve. So there are other housing programs within Dallas-Fort Worth and we are one of the only ones that doesn't have any stipulations upon entering. So we don't, we don't have the young people take a drug test. We don't have the young people take a pregnancy test. We don't require a psychological assessment. It's just, do you need housing? And are you willing to, to try to work with us? And so because of that, we tend to see young people who really were their last resort and their only hope. And so what we found is with a lot of those young people, they really are in need of their independence and in need of really being empowered from the get-go to take control of their life. Yeah. 
And, and you start working with them in the housing program at about age 18? Yeah, so all of our housing is for what you would call an emancipated youth. So it has to be someone who's over 18 and on their own. Yeah, see, that seems to me to be a challenge. You want to make sure that they're safe, like you're saying. You want to make sure that they're maybe going through some kind of structured program to help them succeed. But at the same time, you want to allow them to start being an adult. And to me, that is, a, I think, a philosophical choice that programs have to make. Are we going to treat these young people who have aged out as adults, or are we going to treat them like children? And if you have a super highly structured transitional living program, I would think that the young people would feel like they were being treated like children. And I don't know if you've had those conversations there, but it's my impression that you have taken the, we're going to treat you like an adult with support approach. Exactly. Yeah. I couldn't have said it better. It was definitely after some focus groups with the young people and just kind of looking at our outcomes where we said we need to try something different. And so we really fall on the fact that our young people are capable. So our motto at track is one stop unlimited potential. And we hope to embody that with how we really operate our programming. And so that is one way that we do in our housing program is we believe that you can do this. And, you know, there's a whole lot of psychology behind that as well, that if you believe in someone, they maybe can meet those expectations if they know that you truly believe that they can. And so we see that every day. We see that in the number of young people that sustain their housing for over six months with this model. We see that with the number of young people that get connected to income sources. We see that every day with young people who are able to learn coping mechanisms that they maybe didn't have before, who are able to learn how do they do laundry. So it's an interesting thing, particularly with kids that are transitioning out of a system of care. They don't always have the opportunity to learn those things. And so it may be the first time that they're learning how to cook something other than ramen noodles. Our young people don't always come to us and know how to do that. You're segueing into my next question so nicely, which is, what do you think are the biggest struggles for young people aging out of foster care? I know that there are a lot of different struggles out there that young people face. Like you're saying, as simple as life skills of doing laundry to making very large life decisions about what career do I want to take? Therefore, what education do I need to pursue? And, and it really is this broad spectrum of struggles. But I'm wondering in your years of working with these young people, do you see any trends Anything that rises to the top as far as these are really the two or three main struggles that youth in foster care really have to wrestle with? You know, for track, what we've done is we've really whittled it down to two main things for what we would consider young people to be self-sufficient. And so it has to do with, do they have safe, stable housing? And so that's probably the largest struggle that our young people have is where are they going to live and how are they going to live there long term and is it safe <laughs> that's the main thing and then from there we find that once we can stabilize their housing then we're able to kind of assess their other needs and so the second thing that we really work on is are they on track to a living wage job which we've talked about is do they have a source of income are they going to school those two main things housing and employment there's all sorts of other, what you would call a soft skill or an essential skill that goes along with it that I see our young people really struggling with. So is it that they struggle with stability? 
we've had so many young people who, once we get them in stable housing, once we get them through, say, a construction training program and get them into a great job, that they self-sabotage because they've never lived anywhere longer than six months in their entire life, not with their biological family, not in a foster care system. So once they're somewhere for longer than six months, it feels wrong to them. And so, you know, really trying to teach stability and trying to make sure that there is that support around them. You know, there's so many things about, does a young person have a caring adult in their life that checks on them, that can help them answer those questions? If they have a baby even, and it's eight o'clock and they don't know, my baby's making these cries, is that normal? What should I do? They don't always have an adult to ask those questions of. And so what I find is that our track staff ends up being that support. And it's another reason why we call everybody that works at track a coach. Everybody that works there has at least a bachelor's degree and at least two years of experience working with what you would call at-risk or opportunity youth. But they all carry the same title of coach, no matter how many years of experience, no matter what degrees they have, because we're really trying to break that expectation of what a case manager should do, of what a social worker should do from these young people who've had so many people who've done it to so many different degrees, right? And so instead, we're teaching them from the start that we're here to help you. And so for a lot of young people, that's kind of a first to really understand that they do have control of their own life. A system of care doesn't necessarily teach them that. And so that's really what we're reiterating over and over is how can we empower this particular young person with their particular strengths, with their particular growth opportunities to be empowered to make the best choices. You mentioned it earlier, that really hard decision making of how far do I help you and how far do I go to let you learn? (laughs) And, you know, when you think about a normal let's say 14 year old, I use the word normal in quotation marks, but a young person who's in a pretty stable nuclear family who's 14 or even 18, there's a safety net under them. There's someone who's going to say, man, you really could have made a better choice, but I'm going to stand by you anyway. And so we've tried to figure out how can track be that? How can track let these young people make their choices in a way where we can still stand by them and let them know that we're, we're still going to be there to support them as best we can. What you've made me think of is Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Right. Okay. So the first level being physiological needs, and that's what we're talking about, the shelter, you know, a place to live, right? You need food, you need water, clothes, all of that. Second level safety needs. That's where the employment comes in. You've got money coming in, you're financially secure, you have the resources and so forth. And then above that is love and belonging. But I believe, you know, who am I to challenge Maslow? But (laughs) from what I've read and all the research, it's the love and belonging and feeling like there's a sense of connection and support that is needed to help these young people be successful with the physiological needs and the safety needs. And so I might just rework that model a little bit to try to overlay the connection with the other ones. Yeah, I totally agree. I think what we found is you have to build that level just like you're talking about. I think that's kind of the argument is 
how can you maintain that shelter? How can you maintain that job if you don't feel a sense of belonging, if you don't feel a sense of connection? But you can't even get to that level if those two things aren't there for you, right? I agree. So let me switch gears a little bit. You provide a lot of services to a lot of youth, and we're in the midst of this COVID-19 crisis. How is your organization, your program, being um, challenged with the current quarantine, um, stay-at-home orders, and so forth? How are you youth being challenged? How are you helping them get through this really strange time that we're in? Yeah, it It was such a hard decision to figure out how do we keep the staff and the youth safe, but still continue our services. And so we really have gone virtual as much as possible. And so what we did is we, our main phone number is a net-based phone. And so we've turned that into a crisis hotline. And so young people can call that and talk to their coach just like they would come into the office anywhere that anybody is virtually working. We also have a number of platforms. And so we're offering a lot of different face-to-face options. So some young people like Zoom, others like Instagram Live, others like FaceTime. Um, Some of them don't like it at all. And so some of them are just wanting to have a regular phone touch or text message. And then we also are checking in on our young people every week. So one of the things that we were afraid of was that once this happened and our young people had to self-isolate, that that feeling of loneliness and isolation would be even more than the general population because of their past trauma. And so we wanted to make sure that they knew that we were caring about them and checking on them every week. And so that's what our staff is doing. And some young people are loving that and other young people are like, hey, I'm fine. I just talked to you last week. (laughs) So it's been interesting to see how they react to that. We also started offering an online support group that's art therapy based. And so that's been kind of fun to see young people come together and share their art and kind of work on that on their own and then have a platform where they can share together why they painted that, why they wrote that poem, that sort of thing. So that's been fun for us. And then because so many of our young people are homeless and because our um, drop-in center is what they, what I like to call, and I like to describe it as our drop-in center is like grandma's house. Our address doesn't change. Our phone number doesn't change. We're always glad to see you. So because we have that reputation, especially with the number of young people that are homeless, um, we are still operating essential services, which has been allowed under the state order Monday through Thursday, 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. And so I have a group of first responders who are working those services. And so we've kind of turned what our normally our training room would be into a food pantry. And we have a number of partners who have come together to provide food for us. City Square has a large food pantry. And so we're getting a lot of food items from them. Here in Texas, um, through the Office of the Governor and the Texas Restaurant Association, they created a Comfort Food Cares package. And so TRAC is a member of that partnership. And so we were assigned certain restaurants. So if the community buys a care package from that restaurant, that keeps that restaurant kind of making some money. And then it also gives a meal for a family of four that we can get out to our young people. And so we have staff that are delivering those items 
moms. And then we have a number of young people who have babies. And so we have another nonprofit that called Hope Supply Company that's provided us with diapers and wipes and formula so that we can make sure that those babies have that. And then a lot of our young people had the same kind of jobs that maybe you or I would have had when we were 18, 19, 20, you know, restaurant jobs or retail jobs. And a lot of them have been impacted by this and they've been, if not unemployed, but not working. And so we've helped a number of them apply for emergency SNAP benefits um, and also unemployment. We've walked a number of young people through how to apply for that stimulus check because lots of our young people, they maybe didn't file taxes last year because they didn't make over the threshold to file taxes. So then they had to literally go on and apply for that assistance. And so that's something that we've been doing. And then we've been, you know, just tracking who needs what. There have been a couple of young people who have had symptoms of COVID-19. And so we've worked with the local health associations to make sure that they get screened properly and tested. As of right now, um, we haven't had anyone test positive, but that may change. So, and then we'll walk through what supports do they need to quarantine at home or if they're in the hospital, what, how do we keep checking on them? Right. Well, you've covered a lot of bases to help these young people get through this tough time. Can you see any of the services that you have created? And I'm thinking maybe more along the lines of the online gatherings and touch points continuing past this crisis? You know, I hope so. I think for our team, we've become really adept at some of these virtual platforms. And so it's been really useful to us as a staff team, um, some of the things that we've used. And so I know that internally we'll use them going forward with our team in terms of working with the young people. I think that we definitely can try we have created a Google Classroom, similar to many school teachers out there for our life skills training. And so we're hoping to get that approved for usage. I can see that being used going forward and being a really useful platform for young people that are actively involved in extracurricular activities and unable to come to a group setting. I also can see some of these virtual support groups ongoing. We've tried some of them before, and it's really hard with our young people. They're less likely to have internet in their home. They're less likely to have a standard you know, contract with a mobile provider. And so it's, it's more difficult for them to use data on activities like that. But I can see some of them, we've helped some of them here in Texas. Um, there are a couple of providers that are helping with free service during this time. And so we've helped connect them with that service. And so I can see some of them really liking this virtual platform and keeping it. I think one of the things that it's really helped with our team is cross-training everyone. So I have some people that are crisis case managers anyway, but it's helped cross-train some of our more traditional case managers in terms of crisis case management. So I think it's really given us some tools on how to ask those critical questions of young people to really determine what's going on with them. So I think that's been definitely something that we'll carry forward. Yeah, I, I think it will be interesting across the country to hear about how some of these strategies that have been put into place might be found to be very advantageous and helpful and they decide to keep them. So I'm, I'm interested in seeing how that plays out. Now, is Texas doing anything? The government, have they done anything for foster youth like 
prolonging the stay in foster care so those young people who are aging out don't have to age out until this is over? Has anything like that been happening or discussed? You know, Texas is kind of ahead of the curve with a lot of the services they provide to what they call PAL age youth, Preparation for Adult Living Age Youth. And so there is a supervised independent living program and extended foster care already available to young people to stay in care um, until they're 21. And so that option is still there during this time. They've also kind of relax some of the rules around. So there's there's some rules for some of this funding about how much rental assistance a young person can get in one month and that sort of thing. And so we're tracking weekly kind of the services that we're providing to youth that are in that 18 to 21 age bracket and how they've been impacted by COVID-19 and what the state, what our child protective services could potentially do and help. And so, you know, they've given waivers to maybe provide more than the normal rule is $500 a month in rental assistance. So some waivers to provide maybe $500 in rental assistance and $150 in grocery assistance, for instance, something like that. And, you know, really kind of relaxing and speeding up the process for a young person that maybe has never worked with track before, quickly getting them assessed and approved for services so that we can begin tracking them. So, yeah, this the state's really involved in what's happening and really cares that the young people are getting the support that they need um, during this time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's good to hear. I don't think all states are are there uh, as far as that mindset. So I'm glad to hear that that's the way it is in Texas. Mm -hmm. Me too. (laughs) Well, I could keep talking with you for quite a while, but I believe that our time is is wrapping up here. And so I want to thank you so much for participating. If there's anyone listening who would like to reach out to you to speak with you about your program, uh, maybe bounce some ideas off of you, can they contact you and what's the best way to do so? Sure, they can definitely contact me. They can contact me via email. And so my email is my name, M Reedy, R-E-E-D-Y, at citysquare.org. Um, they can also reach me if they just go to the City Square website and say, contact us. That will get funneled over to me, and I will be glad to get back in touch with them. Okay, wonderful. Well, thank you so much for offering that. I, I really appreciate the time that you've taken today to talk with me about your program and um, and I do wish you all the best with all of your young people getting through this time and uh, and we'll get past it. You know, there there will be a time when this will be history, but I wish you all the best as you're going through it and and glad to hear that you have the support of your state and that you have so many staff who are really, it sounds like going above and beyond to help your young people. It's an honor to get to do this work, I think, to get to enter into that space of helping young people and to be connected with so many people that are passionate about it as well. And so we thank you, Lynn, just for creating this podcast. I know that I've listened to several of the previous ones, and so they've been helpful to me and to my team as we've shared them. And so I hope that more and more people will find out about this great resource that you've created, uh, kind of this um, learned resources of the people in the game and what what we're doing. It's been really helpful to learn from my counterparts across the state. 
Oh, good. Well, I'm so glad to hear that. And that's one of the, the reasons we're doing this is we want programs, organizations, folks like yourselves to um, to find out about other programs. What are they doing? Get ideas. Say, oh, maybe we can do that here or maybe partner. You know, there, there are organizations out there that have some um, some national reach and maybe there's a way to to partner with some of these other programs. So we're going to keep putting these out. And I'm so glad that you're one of the uh, the early ones <laughs> in our series. And, uh, and so you can keep looking for these every other week or so. So thank you so much, Madeline. I really appreciate your time. Great. Thank you, Lynn. You're welcome. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Preparing Foster Youth for Adulting. Any resources or research mentioned in today's podcast will be added to this episode's show notes at agingoutinstitute.org forward slash AOI podcast. If you have any suggestions for people or programs that you think we should highlight in a future podcast, please send an email with your ideas to podcast at agingoutinstitute.org. Finally, if you found this podcast to be informative or useful, we would greatly appreciate it if you would consider becoming a podcast-level patron on Patreon. For only $3 a month, you can help enable AOI to continue interviewing nonprofit leaders, social workers, and former foster youth well into the future. You can find us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Institute. Thank you so much for considering it, and thank you for listening. Until next time.